Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist, with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Sarah Smith about her historical novel, Hear No Evil. Sarah is a writer from Glasgow whose work has been published in a variety of journals and anthologies, and she went on to gain a Scottish Book Trust New Writers Award in 2019. In this episode, we talk about using gaps in history to inspire new writing, why sensitivity readers were a key part of her writing process, and the challenge of translating sign language onto the page. But first, here's Sarah with an extract from Hear No Evil. Thursday, 27th February, 1817. The Tollbooth Prison, Edinburgh. Robert Kenneborough climbed the high street, wearing his smartest clothes. He had been called upon by a clerk dispatched from the chambers of Lord Succoth, prominent judge and former head of judiciary. The clerk wore a pinched look and had little capacity for niceties. He waited outside the house while Robert informed a servant of his purpose, gathered his pen and notebook and pulled on his greatcoat. Once they had reached their destination, the clerk relinquished his charge to the keeper of the Castle Street tollbooth, Thomas Sibbald, and scurried back to his duties. Robert was shown to Jean Campbell's prison cell. It had been a cold February, yet Robert found that he was sweating under his woollen coat. Sibbald, a gruff, heavy-set man, said little as he led Robert up a narrow central staircase to a landing that fanned out in a circle and was punctuated by dark wooden doors. Each of these doors was furnished with a slit at eye level. Robert noticed that the keeper passed them without bothering to look inside. Whether Sibbald was supremely confident about the state of the people in the cells, or whether there were currently no other inhabitants apart from the newly arrived Glaswegian murderess, Robert couldn't tell. The prison itself was in a state of dilapidation. A modern facility was in the process of being built at Calton Hill, and the expectation was that the toll booth would be demolished once the new prison was opened. Here we are, Mr Kinneborough, sir, said Sibbald, as he halted at the fifth door they came to. The keeper raised his hand and pushed back an errant strand of thinning hair, slid a large key into the lock and turned it twice. As the door opened, Robert was struck by a cloying, sickly smell of urine and excrement, but determinedly hid his disgust. Hi Sarah, welcome to the podcast. I'm so pleased to have you here to, to talk to me today about Hear No Evil. Hiya, thanks for asking me Chloe. I'm really happy to come along and chat to you today. Can you start us off with a brief summary of the plot? Sure. So Hear No Evil begins in, the, in Glasgow in 1817, where a, a young woman called Jean Campbell has been arrested for the murder of an infant. And she's been witnessed throwing this child from the old bridge in Glasgow. And there's no evidence comes from the river um, and the authorities are unable to communicate with their prisoner and they begin to realise that she is a deaf woman. So she's charged with murder and she's sent to the Edinburgh Tollbooth, which um, is where she's held until she's to go on trial at the High Court. 
And eventually, um, the authorities bring in a guy called Robert Kinneborough, who's an interpreter. Um, he comes to take Jean's um, testimony and to try to find out if she can communicate in a way that makes her fit to be put on trial or not. So it be as Robert starts to talk to Jean and figure out whether or not she can communicate to the court, um, he realises that there is a mystery surrounding why Jean was on the old bridge in the first place. And that then leads him to turn investigator and go through to Glasgow and try and solve that mystery and get the information and evidence that might save Jean from either um, hanging or incar being incarcerated in a asylum. Mm. And the and as the story unfolds, we find out what really happened to Jean to, that led her to be on the bridge that evening. Yeah, it's a really brilliant story, and many maybe some readers won't know, but it's actually based on a true story um, about the first deaf person to be tried in the Scottish court. So, obviously, that inspired you to begin writing this novel. But when when did you first hear about the case, and what what intrigued you enough to make you want to turn it into a novel? Yeah, so the first um, time that I came across the case at all was I was working um, for an organisation called Deaf Connections in Glasgow. And while I was there, I met uh, a guy who had, um, who he was a retired history teacher and he had pulled together the archives that existed in Deaf Connections because that organisation was really just the most recent iteration of an organisation that had been around since the early 19th century. And Robert brought out a book called The City Silent, pulling together all of these stories. So I read the book, I talked to Robert, and um, early on in the book there was this case mentioned. So the case was that this woman had been arrested and she'd been tried at the High Court in Edinburgh and she was the first deaf person that that had ever happened to. And so the reason that it was in the archives was that that was widely reported on at the time because this interpreter came in to, to, to convey her plea to, um, to the court and that had never happened before or at least not in any kind of um, established way. So, um, so in, the, in Robert's book, there were a couple of sources mentioned um, where it had been reported in the newspapers of the time. And then it'd been looked at about 50 years later, but it was just really a couple of paragraphs. So I was just incredibly interested in this story because I thought, well, what happened? So there was nothing to tell me exactly why she had been there um, who she was what her life experience had been. And so I was kind of intrigued by, by that mention and that led me on to go and try and find out a bit more about Jean's story. Mm. Yeah, it's a mystery in itself, isn't it? And I think your brain's working over time to, to solve it. And perhaps your, your idea to turn it into a novel was you trying to uncover the mystery in a way. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I, I didn't really decide that, initially that it was going to be a novel I was just interested and mm. thought that I might find out a bit more about Jean herself so that I could write something and um, perhaps as a blog or um, as, as some other kind of piece of writing to kind of find out a bit more about the deaf woman herself because mm. some of the people that I was working with in Deaf Connections um, would have been really interested in hearing more about her as a as a woman yeah um and so I I kind of went and tried to find out I thought there'll be lots of information this was a big case there'll be loads of information about her she'll have told her story it'll have all been written down and then I found out that it hadn't been at all <laughs> <laughs> there was lots of written down about it but mm. it was all very dry um kind of court proceedings and it was as if there were lots of people talking about Jean, mm. but there was nothing of Jean herself talking about what had happened to her or who she was. And I found that really frustrating. Yeah. So did you find that quite daunting when you approached it because there was only the bare bones or was it quite liberating to have that kind of 
empty space for you to fill in yourself? Um, I think a bit of both, really. Uh, so, so yeah, so as I said, it was kind of born out of frustration that Jean wasn't in these documents, or at least if they were talking about her, um, you would get contradictory and confusing views. So the so when it had come to her trial, there would be an expert talking about her lifestyle, her upbringing, her education, um, or lack of it, and um, and making assumptions based on that that would serve the defence. And then somebody else would do the same, that would, but it would serve the prosecution. So it was really difficult to know what the truth was. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a way, once I had realised that I was never going to find out, nobody was going to tell me the story, it kind of gave me a bit of freedom to mm. tell the story myself. Um, and then I just kind of went went with it. So even now, I can't really tell the truth and the fiction mm. apart. Sometimes people will mention parts of the book to me and I have to go back in time and remember what's, what was real and <laughs> what I made up. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess so, that's yeah. a sign of your, your writing skill then, if you, if you still can't tell the difference. <laughs> I think yeah I think it's just yeah yeah so you I just got I used lots of um real people and some of those real people are quite true to the people that they were because there was a Mm. lot written about them Um, and then other people who were minor characters uh I've kind of used their names but I don't know whether or not they actually did any of the things <laughs> I've attributed to and I suppose the you know what you were talking about being that being liberating um it the further back in time you go the more liberating it is because mm. that it's further away so there's less likelihood of somebody's descendant popping up and yeah <laughs> Yeah, I was wondering about that. You've got that person completely wrong. (laughs) Yeah, at least you can't upset anyone because it's too far away for anyone to to have that knowledge. Yeah, and I guess also that's the great thing about writing fiction as well, Mm. isn't it? That you can say it's just a story. Yeah, (laughs) it's not a history (laughs) book, and you can use that as a get out of jail card. (laughs) Yeah. So, would you kind of recommend that that method of inspiration? I suppose for other writers that are maybe struggling for ideas like maybe tapping into parts of history that do have those gaps would you say that that's a a good way of of sparking your imagination it's certainly the way that I've got into writing historical fiction and before I wrote here no evil I had written a number of short stories that had a historical basis and most of them were inspired by stories either in my own family history or in other people's family history I was talking about when I worked at Deaf Connections and we um we kind of dipped uh, that was where I got into family history because we had a taster session on that and then set up a group um because lots of people were interested in going into the local archives and finding Mm -hmm. out more about their their own family history so I supported that group and the people in it and you know that's a great way of finding stories because you you stumble across things that are not in history books Mm. and that maybe like extraordinary things have happened to ordinary people um and it just gives you a completely different perspective so I think things like family history and old newspapers I've, you know, sometimes I've gone to research something and then my eye's been caught by another article in the same paper that's, um, that's completely caught my imagination or changed my perception about that time period in history because we're also kind of um, conditioned through our education and, and mm-hmm. our, our educational experience of history to believe certain things happened in a certain way or yeah. that one aspect was incredibly important and so other aspects of history get kind of swept under the carpet or just mm. forgotten about so yeah definitely going to kind of those primary sources and mm. finding out for yourself I think can be you know from a writing point of view can be very inspiring yeah like you say it's a very narrow viewpoint of history that we we learn in school or that we we see even depicted kind of 
in fiction, I think what your novel does really well, and I know I've said this to you before we've recorded, that your novel is incredibly fresh feeling because it's about um, a person and a, uh, well, a deaf woman that you just don't tend to read in, in history or even in historical fiction. So um, I think bringing that kind of freshness to historical fiction is really important. And um, I think you've done a really good job with that. Oh, thanks. Um, I think it's, yeah, that, that the point of, um, that you made about not reading much about deaf characters in historical fiction and actually in fiction generally, mm. I've noticed that over the since I've been researching and writing this book, there have been a lot more central deaf characters have come up in, in fiction. Um, and um, I think that it's something that a lot of people are are taking on board now that you know that that you don't necessarily have to write the same kind of characters mm. with the same life experience over and over again um and so there's a, maybe a bit more experimentation and um characters that come from what could be described as marginalized communities mm. aren't necessarily just tokenistic yeah um yeah. Or, or or kind of there to serve the plot so i think that there are definitely moves towards more inclusive characters within um, fiction generally and for me writing here in the weevil that's been quite an inspiring thing for me mm. knowing that other people are experimenting with that as well um that's kind of given me gave me a bit of momentum to keep going yeah. with the book so it was funny to me that to hear you say that you have written obviously this novel's historical you've written historical short stories because I read another interview where you said you didn't really like historical fiction that much when you were growing up because perhaps you found it kind of dull and maybe a bit stuffy so what changed for you was it deciding to kind of go this fresh route and explore a part of history that hadn't been written about um I think yeah it's it's interesting because it my perspective on that is that I think I came quite late to historical fiction that I hadn't really it wasn't a genre that I read a lot of um I was really I've always really loved um sort of contemporary fiction crime novels and also I think there's a bit of when I was growing up um you know young adult fiction didn't mm. exist so there was kind of what you read as a kid and then what you read as an adult and there wasn't really a bridge between those yeah, two things yeah, definitely. so it was very random what you mm. continued with so I think I was interested I've always been really interested in history um I loved historical dramas for example on tv when I was growing up you know I was completely um addicted to things like upstairs downstairs and when the boat comes in and <laughs> all of these kind of social so I think that that was done a lot on tv then mm. and I was really you know I was really engaged with that but it wasn't till later on when I started reading other types of historical fiction that didn't really fit my probably quite stereotypical assumptions when mm. I was younger that I thought oh yeah that, that's something I could I could do that and I think the first one that really shifted my thinking about it was I read Star of the Sea by Joseph O'Connor that it was really it seemed really fresh and interesting to me because it was one of the first books I ever saw where he had um, kind of clips from newspapers and illustrations that, mm. that, that slotted in between the chapters or the sections of it and it gave you an idea of what, of, of the, the historical context in which these people were living, but the actual dialogue and the story was done in a very modern way in terms mm -hmm. of the language used and whatever. So that, I found that just really an incredibly um, interesting and different book. Mm -hmm. And it, it definitely, yeah, it shifted my thinking about historical fiction generally. I want to talk now about uh, your characters. We've already mentioned Jean, but um, let's talk about Robert Kinneber, who interprets Jean and comes to the prison and becomes her kind of closest ally, maybe her only ally at the time. Um, and I thought there was such a tenderness between them and a real understanding there. Even there are times when Robert kind of 
judges her a little bit. Um, how did you go about creating their relationship? Well, it kind of happened organically because Robert comes into the prison to um, interpret for her. And the real life Robert Kinneborough, I think, as far as I can make out, really just turned up at the court and interpreted her plea. So their relationship is completely fictional. Mm. But um, I ha- I guess it took me a long time to figure out how I was going to t- how I was going to tell Jean's story as a hearing person bec- and w- without being a deaf person I couldn't um, explain her uh, a lot of her behavior or thoughts or feelings so I, I hit upon the idea eventually of Robert coming into the prison and being my way into Jean's story and so and, and that's what happens to him in the book he begins to speak to her he works out that she actually has a very complicated story to tell and he tries to find um, out what's what, what has really happened and get evidence to back up some of her claims and um, and basically during the course of all those interviews is when their relationship starts to develop and he's and he in stark contrast to most of the other um, sort of figures in the prison and in the court system is sympathetic towards Jean. Mm-hmm and has feels that she has a story to tell and feels that he has that that she ought to be given the time to tell it um so that yeah so so and from Jean's point of view because he wants to hear the story she then begins to trust him because so far nobody wants to hear Mm. the story and so she begins to to tell him what's really happened how did you approach researching the 1800s I know you said you're really into using kind of sources from the time and newspapers and things. What else helped inspire you? Well, I think um, one of the main things that I like doing, which is easy if you live um, in the area that you're writing about, um, and the book set between Edinburgh and Glasgow primarily. So I, I, I really enjoy walking around the neighbourhood and kind of getting myself into the mindset of what um, it would be like to be walking around there 200 years before. And I'm interested in using old maps. So I do, I do a lot of that that, you know, I, I use an app on my phone and I go for a walk and I'll look at the old maps and you can overlay the new maps with the old maps oh, wow. and you can kind of figure out what place would look like that's something I just really enjoy doing and Mm. I find that um you know lots of writers give you um advice about get away from your desk go and do something else um and and that's something that I quite like to do is go for a walk anyway Mm. and have listen to you know listen to the radio or the pod or a podcast or just have a think about what I'm working on and yeah so so kind of going to the locations is really useful for me, which is probably why I never really write about very exotic locations <laughs> because I don't know them so well. well. I have done, and I have, um, I wrote a short story a while back that was kind of partially set in Scotland and um, partially set in Baffin Island um, during kind of the the the, um, the whaling industry um, in the mid in sort of Victorian times. And for that, I use I, I would go also use maps, but I would just look at old maps of the period and photographs and whatever. So I think that there's something going on in my brain where I like to see things mm. um, and somehow that allows me to imagine myself back into that time period. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. One of the really important aspects of your novel is the inclusion of sign language. Um, and you managed to kind of translate it onto the page in a in quite a visual way. How did you manage to do that? Oh, right. Um, well, this was definitely definitely far and away the most challenging bit of this book and it's the reason that I kept putting it to the side because I I knew that if I was going to do that I had to get it right I had to find a way that worked um that worked for a hearing audience to understand the dynamics of um of sign language and that also that um my deaf friends would look at and think yeah uh uh-huh okay she's just about there (laughs) because I didn't want them looking at it and thinking that that's nonsense Mm. so I struggled quite a lot with um how to get it on the page but when I did figure out a way of doing it it then became much easier so what what occurred to me initially was you've got a language in BSL that's very visual very kinetic um relies on things like facial expressions um, and movement a lot you can't put that on a flat page of Mm. paper it's just completely impossible so what I decided to do was do snippets write snippets of sign language in English and have them in italics so that the reader could see that we were moving from one to the other and then describe um aspects of sign language within that and that worked to an extent um and but then later on when I was redrafting and editing I realized I had a bit too much of that and that oh, that slowed down the action quite mm-hmm. a lot so I had to cut cut some of that in order to make the dialogue feel more natural and 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 and, and flow better but that was that that was the way that I did it. So it was kind of a mixture of using the italics for, for, for sign language and um, and then describing things. So, so for example, I would describe um, when uh, Jean was talking about um, her um, like how she was um, running um, away from the bridge, for example. Uh, she would um, it would be described it would be she would say it and that would be written in italics partially but then I would describe a particular sign that Mm. she made so for example there's one in it where um, I do um, like something like uh, that she lived somewhere so I would describe um, the sign for live being like that she's bringing her her hand, her fingers towards her body and she's moving the, the middle finger um, at her shoulder, that kind of thing. So I wanted to give people that didn't know sign language a flavour of mm. what, what, what that person was, was doing as they spoke. 
and and also to try and kind of put it into context for people who were who are BSL users who were also reading the book mm. um, and that was yeah that was quite challenging it took a long time to get that right um, and then to make sure that I wasn't that I was scribing it enough to give people an insight but not so much that I was stopping the flow of the of the book um so yeah that yeah that was it and it was interesting I'm kind of quite pleased with it I don't think you could ever do it 100% perfectly Mm. because sign language as I said sign language is a different kind of language to English and it's not written down on the page um so it's yeah it's challenging but I kind of felt like I cracked it hopefully Mm. hopefully people will feel that it's enough um of a flavor of it to Mm. um you know so so that people can feel that they can understand what Jean's saying and how she's saying it even if they don't know the language yeah I think you personally I think you did a fantastic job you've spoken very enthusiastically about the importance of having sensitivity readers and deaf readers give you feedback on your novel and and support you in the the research process I was wondering if there's anything specific that you feel that their advice added towards particularly your characterization um although definitely with the character of Jean um I what what they did um and I'm talking now about I had um a couple of beta readers early on um, I started this novel when I was doing an MLIT in creative writing at University of Glasgow. So I was working quite um, in quite a focused way on the first kind of 20,000 words of it in order to put that in as my dissertation. So I, I showed it to quite a lot of um, beta readers, including a couple of deaf people that I knew were avid readers and would give mm. me honest feedback. So a lot of the building blocks of how I um, portrayed British Sign Language or how I portrayed the deaf characters were kind of looked at by them and a lot of decisions made at that stage, which was really useful because I felt like I had I had it right enough to carry on and finish a first draft. And so they, they, they gave me help on things like um, when... Jean's internal dialogue, for example, she's in a cell on her own um, for some for a lot of the time. Um, but, and sometimes we the reader sees her there. And so she's describing things. So often I would describe things where um, that I would approach as a hearing person, and even mm. when I, I was trying not to. And so those those deaf people picked up on that and they'd say, that's not, they wouldn't say. <laughs> so I would do this, this one bit where um, early on I had her in the cell on her own and there's kind of like a sort of slatted window. And she, and I thought, well, she, she needs to know out, so what's going on outside, but she's so kind of enclosed in this old crumbling prison. And so I thought, well, she can see the dark and she can see how, mm. how how the light changes and that gives her an idea of what time of day it is or whatever and I was thinking about all these kind of seagulls flying by and things like that and I thought well you know I know that not all deaf you know, you know all deaf people have different degrees of deafness so seagulls are really really loud so maybe she would hear a bit of that perhaps and I put this in and um my deaf friend said, um, well, no, she wouldn't. That, that she, she, Okay, she, yeah, if she was really concentrated, she might hear a tiny mm. bit of that. And so eventually what I did was I changed it on her advice to be kind of the flap of the seagull's wings. And I thought if it right. comes too close to that. So that mm. kind of thing was really, it sounds really, it's, it's small and trivial, but all of these things add up to either make a character mm. appear authentic or make them completely inauthentic so so that type of thing was useful and um pointing out stuff like um things to do with deaf culture or deaf history were were really useful I worked quite a lot with um people from deaf history Scotland and they were great um in telling me um you know historical facts but all and also lesser known things so there's there's a a church um service which is done in um sign language and i had the deaf congregation 
waving their hands to applaud. And because that's something that we see all the time. And that's it. I thought, well, that, you know, that must have always happened. <laughs> and my um, sensitivity reader came back and she said, that didn't happen until, and I'm making the date, the date up slightly because but she knew the, the definite date, until the mid-1980s at a conference um, where American people, deaf people came over and they introduced that into Britain because I was there. <laughs> this is great. Oh, wow. <laughs> so and it, that would never, because you see that mm. all the time now and you think, yeah. oh, that must have organically happened. But yeah, mm. it organically happened in America. But And I don't know when they came up with it, but they, yeah. they, it only happened in, it didn't organically happen in, in Britain. We mm. saw that, ha- that people doing it and thought that's a good idea. And I think it's it's much like when readers who are massive uh, sort of history nerds read a book and they go, well, that's completely like uh, completely wrong for the time. Or even people who are watching, uh, I don't know, Downton Abbey and they see something and they're like, well, that that wasn't even invented then. That kind of it's like another level, isn't it, of, of detail that it could totally ruin a book for someone if if they're reading it and it just completely particularly when you're writing about a community that isn't your own, that mm-hmm. you, like you say, you want to do it justice, you want to be authentic and to include something that would just make a reader kind of almost shut down and go, well, this is just ridiculous. Um, I know I've talked about sensitivity readers a lot with writers on this podcast and everyone unanimous kind of positivity about it and, and, and passion for it. Um, and there's, there's kind of at times very ignorant backlash towards it and it kind of is very frustrating when you read that because I know as a writer and I'm sure you feel the same that the more knowledge you have in terms of your research the better the writer you are it doesn't hold you back it doesn't stifle you it enhances what you're writing absolutely and if anything it gave me more confidence and yeah I get really frustrated with those kind of as you say ignorant comments because they come from Mm. a place of not knowing what a sensitivity reader nobody even knows with whether we're supposed to call them sensitivity readers are they sensitivity readers are they authenticity readers somebody Mm. a couple of weeks ago that I know was suggesting you know they're consultants they're the you know they're they're, they're editors in the same way that you um, have a copy editor or a proofreader or whatever and so maybe the term possibly Mm. I don't know I don't think it's I don't think the problem is with the term itself I think some people quite are purposely confused though about it oh yeah I would agree with that um I think that if it's the the snowflakes of the world that's the problem (laughs) yeah exactly it's all these woke people like doing crazy things like asking people what they think of their draft I mean everybody's been doing that forever you know you show you know my, my copy editor um pointed out a whole load of stuff that I'd made mistakes with to do with um the Irish um in Glasgow so or in or in Scotland generally because I was using I mean you know Glasgow is um still a very sectarian place and I was using um terms that I thought were old-fashioned but actually when I was writing them, wouldn't have been used in a pejorative way. So I had to rethink all of that. So, so mm. I was using slurs and, and he said, but in 1817, that wouldn't have been a slur. So they would have had a different slur. So we had to figure out mm. what would the difference, what would the different <laughs> slur be that would still make sense to a modern audience? Um, and yeah, so you, you ask all of these people, your, your editor and your copy editor and your line mm. editor, um for their advice about the things that you don't know or that you you just want to discuss and make sure you've got right so a sensitivity reader is just somebody else that slots into that process Mm. um and I think seeing them as something that's kind of bolted on at the end is also born of ignorance because yeah definitely my sensitivity reader was one of my early beta readers and Mm. she's somebody that I knew from working um, with a deaf organization as well so I had already spoken to lots of people um, her included um, so she she understood where the project had begun and I think that gave her a better insight to do the sensitivity reading because she was looking for 
the mistakes that I'd continued to make rather than <laughs> the ones that she'd already corrected. So that, that was yeah. that was quite good. And that's maybe that's wrong saying that they're mistakes. They're more just some things are obvious mistakes, like the one about the applause, um, mm. you know, the factual thing, you've got factual things, but you've also got the perception and feelings and um, life experience. Um, yeah. That and one one deaf person can't tell me what every deaf person feels mm. but they can give you another layer that allows you to kind of have a bit of insight into it even though you're not in that community yourself I want to briefly talk about um a bit more talk about your career because I know in 2019 you won a new writers award with the Scottish Book Trust um I think there'll be people listening who maybe have heard about different things they can apply for grants and so on can you talk a bit about how you applied for it and how it benefited your career so far yeah well, I mean it benefited it hugely I had um I'd applied for it twice unsuccessfully um and then I went and did as I said I went and did an MLIT in creative writing at Glasgow University and I started writing um what would become here no evil and just as I finished that I applied again for the third time and sort of thinking, it's probably not worth applying. They obviously don't like my writing. What's the point? You know, the way that you do with your self-doubt <laughs> sitting on your shoulder. Um, and then, and but I got a place. And um, what I found out afterwards was that the panel changed every year. So it was worth applying multiple times because a, my writing had changed, um, the project that I was working on had changed, and um, and fresh eyes were going to look at my type of writing. So my assumption that they probably didn't like the way that I wrote was completely wrong. Um, so mm. that would, yeah, I, I would always say to people, you know, just apply, you, you know, yeah, go and redraft, make it as best you can, um, but just try it again, just give it another go, because you you that year might be your year. Um, mm. So, and the good thing about the New Writers Award that the Scottish Book Trust run is it is it goes over a full calendar year, and you get access to as well as a bursary, um, you get access to um, kind of like expert sessions on different aspects of writing, publishing, um, you know, the, just those kind of career pointers, and you they also do a kind of launch event where they send samples of your workout to agents and um, and the media so you get a wee your profile goes up a wee bit um by the end of the year you do a showcase where a, um, a, a book that's a sampler of everybody in the showcase again goes out to agents and publishers and whatever so it just kind of that idea of submitting 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 to agents for example um it just kind of elevates your name a little bit within um, the group of agents that might be interested in the kind of work that mm. you're doing. So definitely from that point of view, it just from a career point of view, it really gave me a bit of a leg up. I mean, you've still got to deliver the goods, but yeah. <laughs> um, you still got to do all that hard work. But then yeah. again, you're with this cohort of about 12 to 14 other people who are all doing working on really different projects, but are all kind of doing the same, all want, are all working towards a sort of similar mm. end goals. So that's, and that's really kind of um, galvanizing. I found that great that we got sent away early on for a week's um, writer's retreat together. And that was just amazing. You know, that mm. it was so brilliant to be around people who were doing, who were trying to achieve the same thing as you um, and making friends that are still my friends. So that, that was great. Um, but yeah, from a kind of purely career orientated point of view, it got me, it got my writing on the table of agents and agents looked at it that I had by the time I'd finished the year and more or less, I think I'd completed the first draft at that stage, but I was redrafting. Um, I had um, interest from about six agents who were saying, again, no guarantees you've got to deliver it, but we're saying, look, mm. that actually sounds like an interesting project. We like the little sample 
that's on the website, you know, send us a, um, your manuscript when you're finished. So I so I had kind of had that in mind. And then by the time that I'd redrafted, there was one agent in particular who got in touch with me two or three times. And um, when I sent out to the few that were that were interested, she was the one who phoned, phoned me or emailed me back right away and said, yeah, yeah, can we have a conversation about this? Um, and that was during the pandemic. So I didn't meet her for, you know, for, for a year after she mm. became my agent. So that's kind of how I got I got my agent. And for some reason, I don't know, I, I wrote one of these how I got my agent threads on Twitter um, a yeah. few months ago. And there was just something about Jenny, my agent, who that that said that called to me. I think she, there was something she saw something in the project that she really liked and then she liked my writing when I delivered it and we just hit it off really quickly mm. and it was tricky because as I said we met in the middle of the pandemic so I didn't meet her for over a year in real life um so we were working together on it and that was that could have been a that could have been difficult but it wasn't um so that it sort of um yeah I'm sure I made the right decision so I just jumped at the chance yeah she said oh yeah can I represent you um, and just have a think about it and of course and I thought yeah I'm going to be like really professional and say yeah I'll have a couple of days to think about it <laughs> I, was just, I, didn't want, and I said look yeah okay I'm going to be really professional I don't really want to think about it but I am because of what you know that's what you want me to do so I went away and I waited for about a day and a half um, like just desperate to say no just I want to work with you that's fine and then mm. I did that um, and just went for it because it just felt right but if I hadn't done the new writers awards she wouldn't have seen my sample and I'm not I mean I might still have got an agent but I think it might have been a, a harder slog um because it it the new writers award meant that people looked at it so I know you've shared a lot of tips already about how to write historical fiction and writing in general but do you have any more words of wisdom for anyone out there um yeah, I have. I've, I've kind of given away most of my secrets already, but um, I think for me, it what's worked for me is not going in with any assumptions about either who you're writing about or the time period that you're writing about, um, because as we were saying that, you know, we pick up all the information through media education and we get this idea that the past was a certain way and once you get rid of those assumptions and treat the past as being just as kind of um, nuanced and full of variation as as the world is now it really I think that really helps um, to see history in a slightly different way and make it palatable for a modern audience yeah, just going in and seeing it as kind of like multi-layered and complex and not coming in with assumptions about what somebody's told you about how someone would live or think or react in mm. whatever time period you're, you're looking at, really. So thinking about readers now, who do you think might enjoy Hear No Evil? What kind of books can you compare it to? Well, when I was writing it, I kept calling it historical crime fiction, and then when it got published, I realised that there isn't a shelf in the bookshop <laughs> called that. <laughs> but but there are quite a lot of people that write historical crime. So and and I think it depends whether your book is either marketed as historical or crime. Mm. If you if you do that, so um, so I guess that yeah, that the answer to that question would be people who like historical fiction and people who and like crime, crime fiction. <laughs> people who like um a mystery to be solved mm. um i think it's quite well people have told me that one of the things that they like about the book is that the chapters are quite short and snappy mm. um and that hadn't really occurred to me i've I hadn't done that consciously but i think that that's a crime fiction thing that i've brought in from that i think i like makes it more pacey chapter. Yeah. yeah so so that's interesting that, that they had maybe had Again, maybe they had assumptions about um, historical fiction that aren't particularly um, true anymore. That mm. it isn't that there aren't short and snappy um, historical uh, novels. So yeah, anybody that kind of likes history and crime and a mystery, and I guess um, 
I'm re- I really hate comparing my book to Go on, other, other people because <laughs> it's more, these are the people that I aspire to be like, mm-hmm. not the people Go that on. I necessarily am like. But kind of, I would say anybody that likes something like Fingersmith by Sarah Waters. I was going to say Sarah Waters was going to be my, uh, my comment. <laughs> yeah, and, and also um, another histor- historical fiction writer called Maria McCann who isn't as well known, but who I think should be really famous and read by loads more people. Um, she writes, uh, her. She, she's written three novels, I think. Um, and uh, her one of them, the first one was called As Meat Loves Salt. And oh, that, um, yeah. she very often takes a, a community or a setting that is, little or never written about and 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 uses that as a kind of basis for a novel so that, and that's and, and bet she's very she's very entertaining and um and snappy and she has a lot you know you know like, like keeps the reader hooked so that's mm. yeah I think those those two would be who I would definitely aspire to be compared to <laughs> and finally um are you working on anything new at the moment um I've, I've st- yeah I've started I have to say that in case in case um in case your agent's listening um (laughs) I have really um I've started planning out book two um and the reason it's taken me so long to plan out book two is I didn't really plan book one and then um I really struggled with structural edits because of that so I'm hoping that doing lots of planning for book two is going to be make it easier in Mm -hmm. the end who knows (laughs) so um but book two is also my historical fiction but it's based in Glasgow again in 1920 and it's set in a kind of um down at heel cinema um during the kind of the start of the boom um in in cinema um Glasgow was I think had at one point in the 30s had the most amount of cinemas per population and oh, wow. people were there constantly um, and lots of the old vaudeville theatres had been co- hastily converted into cinemas to um to kind of capitalize on that so it's it's based around the the lives of um the people who work there um especially this a central character who's been widowed in world war one and um is kind of suffering from kind of the grief and trauma following that so what I want to do is look at grief and trauma from a kind of female perspective Mm -hmm. following world war one so it's it's sort of a I pitched it for a laugh as a kind of mashup of Peaky Blinders and Pat Barker so that that's what I'm going (laughs) for (laughs) well that sounds great Sarah that really does and thank you so much for being a guest today on my podcast you're very welcome it's been really nice to chat to you that was sarah smith talking about her historical novel hear no evil which is out now and available to buy thank you so much for listening and if you've enjoyed this episode please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts see you next time